Well, you know, this life that we're all living is not a destination. You know that? It's, it's a journey. Uh, it's actually very important that we recognize that. This one lifetime that each of us is given on this earth is not our destination. It is a journey on the way to our destination. And, and in fact, it is this journey that prepares us for our destination, which means obviously there is a great purpose in the journey, certainly, but the journey is not the end in itself. There's actually a means to an end. Uh, referring to Christians and, and this world, Hebrews 13, 14 says here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. You see, this is not our final destination, but unfortunately, a lot of people lose sight of that truth along the way for a couple of different reasons. One, they become enamored with this world to the point that they stop moving, they stop progressing, they stop working their way toward the destination, and then they wonder why they have this constant nagging sense of dissatisfaction with their lives, as if there's, as if there's something more, but they can't find it. Well, there is something more. There's a lot more, but if you stop moving toward it, you're going to become dissatisfied eventually with your life because you've settled on the path instead of using the path to continue moving you to the place you were meant to be. The other big reason that people stop moving forward, they stop progressing in life, is because of obstacles, right? And of course, we all face them from time to time, and they come in all different shapes and sizes. Some are much more difficult to overcome than others. Uh, there are times when you arrive at an obstacle in your life, but you know with some thought and creativity, you can probably go over or get around that obstacle, right? It's just a matter of some ingenuity and effort. And yet there are other kinds of obstacles in our lives, like, like the really big ones, right? The intimidating ones, the ones that are impossible to go over or get around. It's those obstacles that can stop us dead in our tracks. And if we're not careful in how we respond, they can actually keep us there at a standstill, no longer moving forward indefinitely until we eventually settle for something far less than what God created us for. I actually have friends um, who have gone through some pretty horrible things because of other people. And because of those experiences, they've allowed unforgiveness to become such a big obstacle in their life that they can no longer move forward. They get stuck in one place, unable to get past the unforgiveness in their own heart. And I'll just tell you, there's nothing that will stop your progress, your, your spiritual growth, your ability to become all that God put you on this earth to become. Nothing will halt that progress quicker than unforgiveness. I know people who have stopped pursuing the calling that God has given them to pursue because of some uh, situation or circumstance along the way that stopped them in their tracks. And so they've settled right where they are, unable to overcome that obstacle because it's so big that overcoming it actually seems impossible. And so they forfeit the life that God intended for them they miss out on the fullness of a life spent following Jesus Christ because they've settled on the other side of an obstacle that seems impossible to overcome. For some, it's a, a broken relationship, maybe a divorce. For some, it's guilt, shame. 
from their past mistakes. For some, it's a lack of resources. They don't have what they need to move forward. For some, it's a set of unfavorable circumstances, maybe an issue with their health or someone in their life who's holding them back. And we can go on and on about the obstacles that people face, right? Obstacles that seem impossible to overcome, that stop people in their tracks and keep them from living the life they were created to live. Stop pursuing their calling. They stop following that dream that God gave them. They stop moving forward and begin to treat where they are as their final destination because going any further seems an impossibility. And the result is you you end up with a lot of people who have settled for a lot less than what God has prepared for them. And so I I just want you to know today if there is a nagging feeling that you experience ongoing, a feeling maybe that there's something more for you, something beyond where you are now, some greater measure of calling yet to be fulfilled in your life, I'll just tell you that feeling may well be there because there is something more for you. Some place for you to go beyond where you are now. A greater measure of calling that has yet to be fulfilled in your life because this life is a journey. And we were meant to travel through it, always advancing, always progressing, always moving forward toward our destination, which means if we stop moving forward and we settle for something less than what God created us for, you can expect an accompanying sense of dissatisfaction or unfulfillment to go along with that decision to settle. To be honest, I believe this is a profoundly widespread dilemma in the modern church era where Christians have settled for far less than all that God has intended for them. And the result is we have scores of people who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ who are at the same time wholly dissatisfied with their lives. When in reality, guys, those two states of being really shouldn't exist together. I'm not saying that followers of Jesus Christ should never experience periods of discouragement or frustration or even dissatisfaction. Of course, we're all human beings, right? We we live in an imperfect world. We're imperfect people. And at times, uh, life can discourage us. It can frustrate us. We can become dissatisfied with certain circumstances. That is simply a fact of life for all of us. Now, I'm talking about people who say they are actively following Jesus Christ, who are at the same time dissatisfied with their lives on the whole. People who are struggling to find meaning and purpose for their lives. People who are constantly trying to fill that void within themselves with material things or new relationships or new distractions to give them some kind of sense of purpose in life while simultaneously professing to be following Christ's leading in their lives. There's something desperately wrong with that picture. Because following Jesus Christ is the most purposeful life you could ever live. Actually, following him is a challenge to be sure. There will be obstacles along the way that can be seemingly impossible at times to overcome. And all of that can be really tough. But when you are truly in step with his leading in your life, you won't wonder why you were put here on this earth. You won't feel worthless or pointless You won't need to try and fill it with other things. You won't feel like you're missing out on something more because following Christ is the ultimate journey.
And it is ultimately fulfilling and satisfying and purposeful because you're constantly moving one step closer to your destination so it doesn't get old. It doesn't become pointless, which really begs the question, why are there Christians then who are wholly dissatisfied with their lives, who feel as if there's no point, utterly hopeless, like they're living without a real purpose, because I'm telling you, there are a lot of them in our churches today. Well, the answer, at least for some of them, is that although they may truly believe in Jesus Christ, and I'm not questioning that, but they've encountered obstacles in their lives which they are convinced are impossible for them to overcome. And as a result, although they believe in Christ, they've stopped following Christ. They've stopped moving forward. They've settled for far less than what they were created for. And now this world, this place that was meant to be their journey, has become their destination. The problem with that is this world cannot satisfy us. It was never intended to. And so the only way we can experience that purposeful, fulfilling satisfaction that only comes by following Jesus Christ when we've been stopped dead in our tracks is by overcoming the impossible, finding a way to break through these obstacles that have stopped us dead in our tracks and kept us from following him into the life that we were created to live. That happens to be what our story is about today as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Joshua, where God's people were so overcome by obstacles in their journey to the promised land that they stalled out in the wilderness for a very long time. But now, finally, they've made a decision to once again trust God's leading, even as they approach what seems to be another impossible obstacle between where they are and where they need to be. And so Joshua, their leader, under the command of God, walks them through the process of, overcomingly, uh, of overcoming, excuse me, the seemingly impossible obstacle that is before them. And the instruction in this chapter is as useful today as it was then. So we're going to read it together and see what we can glean from this story for our own lives. Let's turn there together to Joshua chapter 3. We'll pick up right where we left off last week and we'll begin reading the first six verses. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Okay, so there's a lot going on in these six verses, as we'll see. First of all, Joshua leads the people from their encampment east of the Jordan <clears throat> toward the Jericho, uh, the first city they will enter in the Promised Land. He leads them right up to the, the, the east side of the river, Jericho being on the west side. This is the land that God had prepared and set aside 
for them since he first made the promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. Okay, the, the fulfillment of this specific promise has been a long time coming, including uh, 400, over 400 years of, in captivity in Egypt, 430 years, and then another 40 wandering around in the wilderness. But finally, the people of God are ready to take possession of this promise, their calling, their purpose, the, the dream that God had given them. And yet no sooner do they pack everything up and begin to finally move in that direction, they arrive at the River Jordan, an obstacle between them and the promise, an obstacle so big it would seem to them impossible to overcome, okay? Under normal circumstances, the River Jordan was a formidable Barrier. It ran through a deep gorge all the way to the Dead Sea, 1,286 feet below sea level. That's an average a drop of nine feet in elevation per mile. And in some places, particularly the parts where they were, it dropped in places over 40 feet per mile, which means this was a deep and extremely fast flowing river gorge so that even for just a couple of spies, which we saw last week, there was only one very small place where they could navigate their way across it. Yet this wasn't a couple of spies, secretly, slowly, very carefully picking their way across the narrow fords in the river. No, this was over two and a half million Men, women, and children, along with their livestock and their personal belongings, facing a river that was dramatically swollen. In fact, at this point, it was at full flood stage, right? Because the spring rains and also the, uh, uh, the annual snow melt from Mount Hermon would flow into the river valley, which caused the river to be considerably deeper and wider and faster during the time of harvest, March and April, which we learned from verse 15 is when this was taking place. And so here they stand on the opposite side of a raging torrent from where they're meant to be. How in the world... Would millions of people and everything they own possibly get across this obstacle to the place they were called to be? The fact is, there was not enough ingenuity or effort in the world to figure out a way over or around in the amount of time that God had called them to to get across this river. This raging river had stopped the people of God dead in their tracks. And without the supernatural intervention of an almighty God, uh, they weren't going anywhere. But notice, there isn't a moment of hesitation for Joshua. He's not scratching his head wondering if they're going to make it across this impossible obstacle because he understands that every impossible obstacle in his life has already been overcome by God. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. John 16, In other words, in this life, you're going to encounter obstacles. But take heart. That's the key phrase we'll come back to. Take heart, he says, because I've already overcome those obstacles. Joshua understood that if God calls you to something, then he will provide the way to that calling no matter what obstacle you face. And so he just continues giving them instructions even though their progress has completely stopped. 
He says, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you've not passed by this way before. Normally, uh, the sons of Kohath, or the Kohathites, uh, which were a branch of the Levites, normally they were the ones tasked with carrying the Ark of the Covenant. That was set out in Numbers 4.15. But here, the priests are told, to carry the ark. Why? Because God was about to do something very special. He was about to overcome the impossible. And so Joshua tells the congregation, stay about 2,000 cubits away from the ark once it began to move. Uh, a cubit was the, the length between a man's fingertips and his elbow, about 18 inches, which means 2,000 cubits was over a half a mile in distance, which would have been actually a very familiar length to the Jews because that was also the radius of the pasture land that was set out around the Levitical towns uh, in Numbers 35.5 was also the maximum distance that was determined by Jewish rabbis to be acceptable for a person to travel on the Sabbath which is based out of Exodus 16.29 where the people were told not to leave their 2,000 cubit area on the Sabbath. The point being that when Joshua says stay 2,000 cubits away from the ark, these people would have understood what that distance looked like. They were well familiar with that. So he wasn't asking anything unreasonable or unnatural from the Israelites to comply. And the reason for that 2,000 cubit distance was as much practical as it was spiritual, right? We know the ark was not to be trifled with as it was the very representation of the presence of God among his people, but the reason for this command, do not come near it, he says, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you've not passed this way before. The reason is so that this massive group of people could physically see the ark leading the way, right? It's just someplace they'd never gone before, so they didn't know how to get to where they needed to be. And so if you think about it, if they all remained very close to the ark, only those right up in front would be able to see it, right? But if you separate it from the mass of people by a half a mile, then the much larger group will be able to keep it in sight and therefore know which way to go. And so all of this instruction by Joshua is meant to prepare the people to overcome the impossible. And yet the most important instruction by far comes in verse 5 when Joshua tells the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you, okay? To consecrate oneself uh, meant extensive preparations personally for each one of them. It involved prayer, it involved repentance of sins, fasting from certain foods, self-denial, abstaining from sexual relations, purifying oneself, washing your garments, right? In other words, God is about to do something otherwise impossible in your life. So before you take one more step, you need to take some time to prepare your heart, okay? I'm certain there must have been a lot of talk among the people leading up to this moment about entering the promised land, about taking possession of all that God had promised them about finally leaving the wilderness and entering their destiny. And yet the moment they arrive at the Jordan, this deep, 
wide, raging river. For many of them, all of the conversation leading up to that moment must have seemed like a lot of hollow talk, right? Seeing firsthand this insurmountable obstacle before them. Can't you just imagine their hearts sinking in their chest when they realize their calling is on the other side of that river? And so Joshua says, it's time to prepare your hearts for what God is about to do because right now I'm telling you, you're not ready. You see, if you're facing obstacles in your life today, circumstances that stand directly between you and what God has called you to, it's very easy to become discouraged, I know. It's easy to see how impossible overcoming that obstacle may be, which is why it is critical that we take pause along the journey when facing impossible obstacles to take time to prepare our hearts for what God wants to do in our own lives. Because the fact is, he's already overcome that obstacle. That's why Jesus said in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. That phrase, take heart, in the Greek is the word therseo. It means to have courage. Jesus knew that the obstacles in our lives would discourage us. So he said, look, when you face obstacles, you can actually take courage courage because I've already overcome that obstacle. You see, when we, when we face impossible situations in our lives, God doesn't need time to prepare for it. We do. We need to get our hearts in line with his. We need to consecrate ourselves. We're the ones who need to prepare our hearts so that when he tells us to move, we're actually ready to move. An awful lot of people, I'm, I'm talking about Christians, don't do that. We come to a screeching halt when confronted by a great obstacle in our lives and then we wonder why we can't overcome it. Yet all the while our hearts are full of things like hurt and bitterness, unforgiveness and doubt and fear, shame and pride and unbelief. And we wonder why we're not making any progress. This is precisely, uh, by the way, why he allows impossible obstacles in our lives to begin with because they force us to stop and evaluate ourselves. That's the point, to prepare our hearts to move into the next season of our lives that he's calling us to because often, look, God won't allow you to walk into the fullness of all that he's created you for when your heart is in rebellion with his. Right? He allowed the Israelites to flounder around in the wilderness for 40 years because their hearts were not ready to enter the promised land. They were in rebellion against his. Likewise, we run into these uh, obstacles that force us to have to stop what we're doing and evaluate our own hearts. You see, the obstacles are actually often a great act of grace in our lives by our Father who loves us enough to give us the time to stop, to pause, so that we can prepare our hearts for the next step, so that we can align our hearts with His. And the way we do that today is much like they did it then. You take time to pray. You take time to fast. You take time to repent. 
to deny ourselves, to purify our hearts before him, and then to dedicate our lives and our future to him so that when the time comes to begin moving forward again, we're ready to face that obstacle that he's already overcome for us. You see, there's a tendency anytime we face great obstacles in our lives to focus on the obstacle when actually we should be focusing on Christ and what he wants to do in our own hearts. Because the key to overcoming obstacles is usually not a change in the obstacle itself. It is a change in us. Then God removes the obstacle. The Israelites could have sat by that river for another 40 years trying to think up a way around it. But focusing on that obstacle was not going to get them any closer to the other side. No, it was focusing on God and what he was doing in their own hearts that prepared them to cross over to the other side. It should always be our first approach to every barrier in our own lives. Father, what do you want to change in me? What hurt or unforgiveness do I need to let go of? What fears or failures do I need to let go of? What sin do I need to repent of? Lord, what faith do I need to hold on to? What is it in my own heart that needs to change first? Because overcoming the impossible will always, always require our hearts to be aligned with his first. Let's keep reading verses 7 through 13. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So Joshua gathers the people and says, listen up, guys. Here's how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you all of your enemies. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Translation, if you're going to overcome the impossible, You'd better wait for God to move. Back in verse 3, Joshua said, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it, not before. And then here in verses 10 and 11, he explains the way they'll be able to overcome their enemies is by the presence of God who is among them actually going before them. 
Then in verse 13, he says, when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. In other words, we better wait on God to move because he's about to overcome the impossible for you, but don't you step one foot into that river unless God is with you. Okay, maybe, you know what, maybe if the 2.5 million Israelites had bull rushed that river, I don't know, maybe some of them would have made it across Maybe if they'd taken all of their belongings and built some kind of makeshift bridge, maybe they could have moved single file across the river. Maybe, I don't know. But you know what would have happened? Anyone that did make it across would have been killed one by one by their enemies on the other side. If you take two and a half million people single file and figure one person crossing that river every second, right? And they did that day and night, 24 hours a day. It would take 29 days for all of them to get across, a month. All the while, their enemies picking them off one at a time. You see, those seven enemy nations that we just read listed in verse 10, they're also listed, those same enemy nations, they're listed in Deuteronomy 7.1 where they're also described in that passage as more numerous and mightier than the Israelites. This is what they're facing, which is why Joshua, we saw last week, called together 40,000 armed elite military men from the Transjordanian tribes to go before the people, to be the first to cross before the rest of the people, to protect the others from a possible attack during the crossing when they would be most vulnerable. But their strength was in their numbers. The only way for those 40,000 fighting men to cross over together was for something miraculous to happen because this obstacle was otherwise impossible to overcome. And Joshua knew that. So he told the people to wait for God to move first. And then verse 13, for the first time in the story, the people are told what God will do for them. If they wait on him to move on their behalf, Joshua says, when the soul's of the feet of the priest bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. And the word heap is used to describe the waters there as they're being held back that Joshua uses. That's actually an important word in the ancient Hebrew. It's the word nade. It means piling up like a mound or, or like a wave, which is the exact same word that is used in Exodus 15.8 and in Psalm 78.13 that describe the parting of the Red Sea when the Israelites were delivered from Egypt. And the reason that is so important is because there are actually people today who dispute that this crossing of the Jordan was a supernatural event. But Joshua clearly describes it as such. 
He compares it directly to the event at the Red Sea, and we'll come back to that in a moment. The point for now is this. Joshua was informing the people that God was about to do something otherwise impossible. He was about to part the waters and create a way for them to cross into the promised land altogether at one time where there was otherwise no other way to do that. But it could only happen if they waited for God to move first. Okay? Anytime we're facing insurmountable obstacles in our lives, doing the wrong thing is just as bad as doing nothing. And getting ahead of God is always the wrong thing. In fact, we'll see that in the story in weeks to come when the Israelites do just that. To move ahead of God and his timing when you're facing great obstacles in your life is to invite disaster upon yourself. Because when you move ahead of God or outside of his will, you're opening yourself up to an attack from the enemy. And yet people do this all the time. They come up against something in their lives and instead of waiting on God to guide them, to go before them, they take matters into their own hands and inevitably end up worse off than if they just stayed where they were. People enter into relationships with other people outside of the will and guidance of God. They do it all the time. Why? Because they're tired of being lonely and they get discouraged. And so instead of waiting for God to lead them into the relationship that he has actually prepared for them, they rush into something that ends in disaster because they got ahead of God. Likewise, people who are in relationships will sometimes leave them instead of waiting on God to move on, on their behalf in that relationship. They will leave ahead of God and miss out on all that he had planned for them in that relationship. We have to remember when facing obstacles in relationships, uh, in jobs, in big decisions, in life, there is always a time to wait for God to move. And while we're waiting, that is when we prepare our hearts. That is when we move toward him to align our hearts with his so that when he says, okay, now it's time to move, then we're actually ready to move, but not before and not without his guidance. Let's finish reading the story for today. Verse 14 to the end. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the Jordan, dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. And so finally, after many long years of wandering and waiting, the impossible is made possible. The people of God finally cross over the River Jordan into the promised land. Joshua says, as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped into the brink of the water, 
The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. In the city Adam uh, mentioned here is the modern city of Demiah. It's about 18 miles north of the fords of the Jordan. So God stops the water almost 20 miles upstream, probably to create a wide enough area of dry river bottom for two and a half million people to cross over in haste altogether. And again, uh, there are people, even some scholars, who have tried really, really hard to prove that this was actually a natural phenomenon rather than a supernatural work of God. There was a, uh, a famous Arab historian named Nawari who documented an earthquake which triggered a mudslide on December 7, 1267 AD near Demiah that dammed up the River Jordan for about 10 hours. Uh, likewise, th there's a famed British uh, Jericho excavator, John Garstang. He reported on July 11, 1927, there was another earthquake that basically did the same thing, blocking the river for about 21 hours. And so there are people who say this event with Joshua was just another earthquake causing a mudslide. And of course, there are others who agree that it was an earthquake and a mudslide, but that God must have caused the earthquake to happen. So uh, I guess that's supposed to be the best of both worlds. But I'll tell you why I don't personally agree with those assessments. Because first of all, neither of those uh, earthquake events occurred during the spring flooding of the Jordan. Right? This is when it was exponentially wider and deeper and faster than when at normal levels, not even close to normal levels, which means those mudslides wouldn't have been able to touch the flow of the river when Joshua and God's people were there. Secondly, as detailed as Joshua is in his reporting of these events, he never once mentions an earthquake. Thirdly, and most importantly, verse 17 says, the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on what? Dry ground. In the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Okay, If that river simply dammed up by a mudslide and the waters receded as they would in that kind of event without any supernatural intervention by God, the last thing that Joshua would have been reporting is people crossing over on dry ground. The bottom of that riverbed would have been a muddy, murky, swampy mess. But it wasn't. It was dry as a bone. How can that be? The same way he piled up the waters in a heap at the Red Sea as described in Scripture when God did what was impossible, when he made it possible supernaturally. It's just as Jesus said. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Luke 18, 27. You see, the very thing these scholars lack is the very thing Joshua is telling us we had better have if we're going to overcome the impossible. We must learn to walk by faith. And look, admittedly, that's the scariest part of this whole deal. It would have been really nice if when it was time to cross the Jordan... God had stopped the waters before his people ever got to the river. But that's not what he did. 
Not even close. Instead, these priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant had to walk into that raging river with the Ark, balancing it among them before anything was going to happen. And it was only after they were in the river, in the midst of that obstacle that God worked the miracle. Telling you this is the flip side of the last point because yes, we need to wait on God before we can overcome the impossible without a doubt. But listen to me, once he tells you to move, it is time to get up and get moving. And yet it's more than just moving, you see, because when God tells you to move, he means for you to get right into the thick of it and confront that obstacle, that impossible situation, that hopeless marriage, that broken relationship, that addiction that will not let you go, that bad report from the doctor, that fear that haunts your sleep, the unforgiveness that is eating you alive. God says you face that obstacle in your life and don't stop moving forward until you're on the other side because I am God and I am able and I have already overcome that obstacle for you and by the way I am with you and yet every step of the way I'm telling you it will require you to walk by faith He can lead you to the river, but he won't make you cross over it. You're going to have to wade into that water, even though it's still raging all around you. You're going to have to get your feet wet, even though nothing has been dried up yet. You're going to have to confront that impossible obstacle in your life, even though the circumstance has yet to change. And that will require every ounce of faith that you can muster, and yet that is exactly what it takes to overcome the impossible in your life. John the Apostle wrote, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. There's no way around it. Overcoming the impossible in your life will demand your faith, because you can prepare your heart to confront that obstacle. You can wait on God before you move toward that obstacle. But once he tells you to move, it's on you. You have to get up and confront the obstacle. You have to meet it head on. You have to wade into those turbulent waters, but you can do so with great faith because God is with you. He goes before you, and the moment you step into that impossible situation, his hand will move on your behalf as he begins to dry up those circumstances, as he begins to soften people's hearts, as he begins to break bondages in your life, as he begins to mend broken relationships and bring peace where there's been nothing but turmoil. Why? So that you can move through it to the other side of that obstacle. Still, there are many people, people I've met with over the years who will say, Pastor, I've already been through so much. I'm not sure I can take one more obstacle. And I'll tell you, I can certainly understand that. Walking by faith Overcoming obstacles is not easy work, but I want to tell you something. The Jordan River Valley 
lies in the shadows of the western mountains of Judah and Samaria, and on the east, the Jordan Plateau. It rises to over 3,900 feet, but the entire river valley itself is all below sea level. In the local Arabic language, that river valley is referred to as the Gore, which means bottom. And yet within the gore of the Jordan River Valley, there lies a secondary valley, which is an additional 100 to 200 feet even deeper than the valley floor. In the Arabic language, that deeper valley is called the Ez-Zor, means thicket. The Lord actually mentions it in Jeremiah 12:5, and many of the locals today refer to it as the jungle of the Jordan. It is known as one of the most formidable landscapes on the planet Earth. For this Ezor, this thicket, is made up entirely of the harshest, shoulder-high, tightly twisted, impossibly tangled, and rank varieties of thorns and thistles mankind has ever seen. And it is in the very center of that thicket that you must drop 100 to 200 feet down into. Right in the middle of it is where the Jordan River twists and turns its way south toward the Dead Sea. In antiquity, during the time of Joshua, the Ezor was over a mile wide. And to top it all off, it was absolutely filled with wild and dangerous animals, including wolves and wild boar. You understand, long before the priests or the people of God had to get into that river, they first had to navigate the Ezor. Not to mention being encamped there, right by the river, contending with thorns and thistles, with everything they owned in tow, under constant threat from wild animals, unable to see past your own tent to the water, two and a half million Jews with their livestock and belongings had to survive this jungle of the Jordan. Some historians and scholars actually believe this was as big a miracle as the actual crossing of the river because before they ever got to the water, they had to survive this thicket. And at that, after 40 years in the wilderness, knowing that once they crossed the river and through the thicket on the other side, side, they would be confronting the most heavily fortified and well-defended city in all of Canaan. I cannot imagine how weary these people must have been. And yet they were able to muster the faith to step into that raging torrent, believing all the while that God would see them through. But you see, that's what it takes if you're going to overcome the impossible, you have to just keep walking by faith, no matter how difficult it is and no matter how long it takes, because our God is with us every single step of the way. Some of you are facing some big obstacles in your life right now, impossibly big obstacles. And if you let them, they will paralyze you to the point that you don't move forward anymore. When you get stuck in one place long enough, it can begin to feel like your destination. I'm telling you where you are now, that is not your destination. And you don't have to be bound by that obstacle anymore. 
I don't care how impossible it may be because God has already overcome it for you. Which means once your heart is aligned with the heart of Christ and once you know that you're not getting ahead of him and he tells you to move, you get up from where you are and start walking by faith once again, even though you're weary and surrounded by impossible circumstances. You just keep walking by faith because that is our victory that overcomes the impossible. Faith that God is with us. Faith that he has gone before us. And faith that he will see us all the way through it to the other side. You don't have to settle where you are. You don't have to settle behind obstacles in your life. You don't have to settle for anything less than all that God has prepared for you because by faith in him, you can overcome even the impossible. Let's pray.